how sour must your life be? How how hollow is your spirit that you decided to take five minutes out of your day to say someone who sacrificed their life saving someone else's life? Welcome to the Skipping Fanny Show Screen Scouts. Have you ever wondered why there are no police on the internet? Yes, constantly. Literally all the time. Constantly. I mean, they're there. They're just on parlor. Huh? You're not wrong, though. <clears throat> Back on track, team. <laughs> anyway, I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. I'm Iori. And on today's show, we'll discuss Luto Sobakas no Ime. AKA Bell in English. It is a new animated feature by Studio Chizu, directed by Mamoru Hosoda, and starring Kao Nakamura, Ryo Narita, Lila Ikta, and Takaru Sato. Oh my god, we can stop. We, we don't need to do anything else for this podcast. <laughs> oh god. That's it. Skippy Fanny Show's over. I pronounced one thing in Japanese correct enough that somebody who speaks the language said it was fine. We're good. <laughs> this this reaction that you're having right now is why we need bloopers, but that's just me. But before we talk about the movie, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We still want to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So please get those thoughts in. We really want to hear from you. We really do. We really do. Please. Perfect. All right. Well, we're going to get onto the summary, but uh, a quick note before we get to that. I know we keep delaying you, but you're just going to have to suffer. This film features, and this conversation we are about to have, will feature some discussions of things such as depression, suicide, and child abuse. There will be depressing statistics, we are told. And if these topics may be outside of your comfort zone, we would be happy if you took a mulligan on this episode and just come back to our, our next thing. So we just want to let folks know that because we were very much not expecting the movie we ended up with, but we're letting you know now that you're getting a movie and a conversation that will deal with those subjects. So with that said, let's get on to the summary. So the plot of Bell, I'm going to use that name for, for much of this because that is what most people will discover it as in English in the United States. It follows a character by the name of Suzu, who is a 17-year-old high school student who essentially deals with some of her traumas as she's handling the, the death of her mother and going through regular high school life and dealing with crushes and all those things. But in the midst of all of that is this new virtual environment called You, which is billed kind of like a Ready Player One, but with way more music and flashy things and flying whales. And in that, she becomes a major pop star uh, by the name of Belle, essentially becomes in contact with this character who is the Beast, because this story is somewhat based on the original Beauty and the Beast story, 
And in the process of discovering this character who is like a fugitive running away from the secret you police, I guess they're not very secret. They're kind of like, they're kind of blatantly out in the open, I guess, with it. They have corporate sponsorships. They do have a lot of corporate sponsorship. Yeah. She she grows an attachment to this character. She tries to learn who he is, tries to discover his true self, and tries to understand, understand the source of his pain, which manifests as a form of bruises on his body. And the story kind of follows that from that point on where she's trying to uncover who he really is to try to help him dealing with her friends who are having crushes and her really obnoxious friend who just wants everybody to join his uh, kayak club and all of these kinds of things. So the plot, I will say, is pretty simple on its face. It's all the specific details that are super complex. Okay, so I'm going to start by saying about half an hour in, I wound up texting Brandon, wait, wait, is this movie just about doxing a guy? Yep. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, uh, when you when you texted me that I hadn't watched the movie yet, I was about to watch it. And like, I saw that message and like, no, I'm going to excise this from my brain before I start watching the thing. But it kind of is. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is, right? But then you get to this point, and this is not me excusing Suzu and her friend uh, Hiroka's behavior. Because, good lord, did they do a lot in the first half of this movie for 45 minutes. Uh, they're digital detectives. Mm -hmm. No, no, they're cyber stalkers. A I mean, bit. right. Yeah. Uh, but, like... I mean, they did hack that one woman's ring doorbell camera. Yeah. I didn't like that. Oh my god. They did a whole hell of a lot and it was it was not all very good. And like this is not me excusing their behavior, but also not me insisting that a story needs to portray teenagers as consistently wise or or, or noble people. But the movie it isn't so much making a case one way or the other, but there is a point at where the movie shifts from these teenagers are obviously meddling in the lives of adults for no reason to what is essentially the exact same thing that just changes its moral context, which is, is essentially uh, cyber-stalking good or noble when you are attempting to genuinely improve someone else's life and you're trying to ensure that somebody does not suffer? And that's not an easy question to answer, and I don't think the movie cares about the answer, actually, uh, which is its own thing. But it is the same kind of, like, there is a point where the exact same things that they've been doing at the beginning of the movie stops being, I just want to know who this person is because it's going to give me personal validation, so I'm going to spy on this woman randomly in her own home to, uh, what's the name of this Netflix documentary again? Don't mess with cats. Oh, God where they're essentially trying to save someone's life. And that distinction is curious, and I don't think a lot of other people have had a conversation about that distinction in any of the reviews that I've seen, which I think is particularly noteworthy, because it just kind of happens. The movie doesn't care to ask very deeply, does this change one's perception of their actions? They just partake in those actions, and it potentially saves um two people's life, two young people's lives. But part of why I enjoy the movie is, in fact, because it doesn't answer that question, but that's a very fraught statement to have about a movie, that because it didn't address cyber-stalking very astutely, I enjoy it. 
Be that as it may, I'm going to be a lot more aggressive now about making sure to scrub out the reflections of surrounding buildings in my pupils before I post selfies. Yo? Yeah. Every time I take a photo by a window now, I am blurring the window. That's a lot. Yeah, so one of the things that that my summary didn't really cover because I didn't want to necessarily provide the specific details of what the searching and discovering who the character is called Dragon, which is noted that the, the Japanese literal translation is the dragon and the freckled princess, if I recall correctly. That's just been put as Bell because I guess they're highlighting the Beauty and the Beast connection a bit more, which... Sure, okay. But one of the things that I think is important is that a lot of what we're talking about is this film very much shows in some really uncomfortable detail, comfortable in a good way, kind of the nature of online discourse. Because one of the things that Suzu goes through is she just goes on on you at one point, like as this character that so the way that you works for those of not who, who are just now watching or, or have never seen it is like it basically looks inside you and uses biometrics to like make a version of you for this world. And that version like represents your inner self, which is inherently extremely weird because it's kind of neat, but also weird. OK, when you look at everybody else in the world. They've got all these really exciting little creature forms and so forth. And it's just like, oh, so everyone's got this really cool shit going on and you're just going to be a hot girl. Yeah. Yeah. You could have had wings. You could have had horns. But like one of the things that happens to her, right, is is she she sings this song and she becomes super famous. And like, like basically in like a matter of moments, she ends up with millions of followers. She goes viral. She goes viral massively viral we're talking tens of millions of followers one night she has no followers and then the next afternoon she has 10 figures and one of the things that stands out about that is that this film doesn't just show us the praise like i I think another film would treat it as it's just like look at all the nice comments that are being made and that would be the overwhelming part but she's getting both she's getting the people saying oh they love her you know that she makes me feel good about myself and like all of that pressure but then also all of the really mean things. And I will say that the film may be pulling its punches a little bit because it's trying not to be too dark. But given that a lot of what has been brought up is things like cyber cyber stalking, etc. I think it kind of has enough darkness on its own. But I, I think that the fact that the film tries to show us the uh, partly the effects of this, especially in Suzu, who frankly is overwhelmed, has a panic attack at one point. Um, you know, at, partly as a consequence of of the fact that her mother has 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 unfortunately died in in a really sad and tragic uh, incident involving saving another kid's life and all of that. But I think it's really important that we have films that are going to deal with like th- this is basically Ready Player One, but from a slightly darker angle. Ready Player One basically just does the like big corporations are evil. We fought the big corporation, we won, and like look, we fell in love at the end. And this film went, well, no, but like Ready Player One's universe is actually probably more fucked up than that movie makes it out to be because of the way that people are invasive. And the cyber stalking is one part of it where these teenagers, you know, as Brandon's correct, that you know, they're they're teenagers. So like their moral compass is sometimes a little bit wonky. Uh, they feel perfectly inclined to go dig into people's personal lives to find out who is who to dig up the real identity of Dragon. But then all these people out there in the in the web feel totally fine saying whatever they want about some other person they don't even know 
often in really cruel ways without any real care about the potential harm that that does to somebody. And and I think that that's great that it does so. It's uncomfortable at parts because, ooh, like, who wants to face that kind of stuff? But it's dark. And I and I do in, I do appreciate it. I do just wish that the film's ending would maybe say a little bit, have a little firm stance on what exactly is is the solution, or at least what exactly is the character's solution, which is not clear and apparent to me at the end. But yeah, I will also say that while the movie is really really pretty, especially the virtual world sequences, every instance of peril in the virtual world falls completely flat for me because the stakes of just disconnecting are not established. Like, there are several situations where someone could have gotten themselves out of danger by just logging off. Because this isn't Sword Art Online. It hasn't been established that you're going to give yourself, like, terrible, terrible brain damage by just logging out suddenly. So all the chase scenes, the interrogation scene, etc., log out! So I have a lot of thoughts about this, personally, as a big fan of Hosoda's films, because I've seen Summer Wars, the internet movie that he made before this. Yeah. I think there are things about the internet that uh, Hosoda is very deliberately thoughtful about, and I think one of those curious things is, very uniquely, the kind of liminality of the internet. This is the first movie that uh, he has made where there is a physical process through which you enter into the internet. In Summer Wars, you were just using your phone or your computer. But in Summer Wars, they treated that digital space as if it were still real space. To the point where if your avatar was in a digital fight, you would see that person's like actual human user beat feel tense feel exhausted feel hurt and feel like they have been ejected from space um and i thought that i was always particularly curious about the ways in which he presents digital space uh i also thought it was really funny and telling that sean mentioned ready player one because hosoda actually did an interview <laughs> where like he highlights that he does not think that Ready Player One is a forward-looking vision of the internet, and says, translated but verbatim, "I think old guys shouldn't make movies about the internet," um, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> the dude's fifty-four. I'm sorry. When do you become old? <laughs> yeah, Showa Yonjuninen. When you when you hit Spielberg's age, I guess. Uh, so like about the internet in particular, like to the question of what are the stakes of being on the internet? I think. Having established that there are that there is a physical process to engage with the internet is part of what waters it down somewhat for me. But but the process is earbuds that act like a vibe. Yeah, it just kind of happens, and I just kind of tolerate it because I'm accustomed to other kind of liminal attachments to the internet in summer wars. Also, like those were hella pricey earbuds. I'm just saying. Yeah, those look kind of expensive. But like, what I think Bell does in terms of establishing his stakes actually worked even more for me than Summer Wars because there is a consistent level of stakes that the movie cares about a lot throughout the entire movie, which is there is a method through which we can just reveal who you are IRL. And that not only matters a lot on the internet generally in an age of anonymity, but it matters to Suzu because Suzu is a child. 
And we only learn afterwards that it also matters to uh, Dragon, but that's for similar reasons. Yes, but again, could one not dodge the doxing beam by just logging the hell off? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the problem. That's never established, and it seems like the easiest solution to all of this. Yeah, I I agree completely that I I see where you're coming from, Brandon, and, and I think the issue is that that is an easy solution is just making it clear like when you're being interrogated you can't just log off which is actually more terrifying mm-hmm, yeah. because that means you're you can another person can force you to remain in game against your will which which then could come with the added horror of which is doxing because that's a sec- essentially the only real threat right which is that your real identity could be revealed and that's part of like the conclusion cuz she reveals it anyway and the the dude's like really like Albert or whatever his dumb name is is he's just like oh my god what are they doing and then he gets taken down by a human wave which is kind of fun but yeah it's just like the it would have been really easy to establish why that isn't a solution and i think not having done that makes it really hard to for me to engage with the stakes until Mm -hmm. the big reveal even then i Mm -hmm. I found some aspects of the ending didn't seem to be dealing with what was being set up for us in ways that in two different ways one related to this which is the doxing because for much of the film the relationship that suzu has to the internet is one of like real conflict because it's it's a very trepidatious relationship where she's getting a lot of attention that she doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with and then a lot of very negative invasive attention which is you know for for anybody is really struggle a a big thing to struggle with but for a you know a teenager who's roughly 17 years old is extra i thought that was one of the most poignant things actually that she is like many people Engaging with the internet as a way to try to self-medicate her anxiety and depression and finding that it exacerbates the problem. Yeah, because like, yeah. like I said, she had that that big panic attack, I think, after she became really popular for one of the songs or so- I can't remember exactly what, what became the triggering moment. But and, and, that, and then at the end, right, like she reveals her identity so she can connect with Dragon so that Dragon will she's found out who Dragon is and all this stuff. But it just kind of seems like she reveals who, who her real self is and then the film just stops dealing with what were the issues being set up to begin with which is are we just supposed to think that she's not going to face an excessive amount of very invasive actual person? attention yeah. yeah because now people know who she is and are can hunt down you know her real her real identity is she just not going to face that basically all the focus on what consequences are for her are discarded in favor of focusing on the dragon. Yeah, and even that, I mean, I know that we, we're going to have to talk about it, but even that I kind of, <sighs> as somebody who oh has Lord. some personal experience with uh, with abusive parents, uh, I can say that uh, the, the end to this did not satisfy me <laughs> as somebody... And and I know you're you're going to talk a little bit about why that is because there's there's cultural context I did not have going into this, but I found that very very like it just sort of this very wishy washy of like she just goes and like basically means a grown grow man cry and run away by by standing up to him, and then Kai just kind of goes yeah okay like I'll I'll be brave now too and that'll solve it and that's honestly ridiculous. I got so angry when Kay they said that like. 
no, no, you've been being brave. You've been being yeah. brave this entire time. You've been standing up for your family this entire time. You have been consistently failed by every adult in your vicinity for several years. You bear no fucking None. responsibility for any of this. And that the fact that you are like, I'll take more responsibility is treated as some sort of character development or victory line infuriates me. I, I'm right there with you. I found that really, really, <laughs> really... I don't want to say it, but... Uh, no, I'm just going to say it. Fuck it. I found that offensive and disrespectful. No, it was offensive. It was deeply fucking offensive. I think we need to rewind and spoil <laughs> the big twist for everyone. Okay. Mm, yes. Iori, let's explain the big twist. Let's just do it. The big twist is that the Beast is an abused child and his younger brother. Let's have a little talk about Japan. Go for it. Child abuse is a huge problem over here. And it's just been getting progressively worse every single year. I only have numbers up to um, Lewa Ninen, so sometime in 2020-ish. These are only numbers... For people who made consultations to child welfare centers, so they are dramatically underreported. But in 2020, we had over 200,000 reported cases due to things. There were reduced reporting in 2020 in terms of like a lot of centers were briefly closed and so forth while they were ironing out pandemic issues. And that's the only reason that we only that 2020 only represents about 6% increase of reporting year on year, whereas the previous two years had been respectively a 21.2 year on year increase in reporting child abuse incidents and a 19.5% increase. And that's just what gets actually reported to a child welfare center. Most stuff does not get reported. And you also have to understand that the majority of social workers and child welfare workers in Japan are not trained or credentialed. You don't need special certification for these jobs. You can just be assigned them when you take a civil service position. And then you've got like a 20-something graduate in their first or second job going out to deal with an angry parent, getting intimidated and backing down. <laughs> Another thing is that that's a major problem is that the Japanese welfare system places huge, huge, huge emphasis on trying to keep children with their biological parents at all costs, which is how we get a lot of child murders. Like those are often kids who were separated briefly and then returned to the situation because you, the judge can actually just ask the parents to sign a little pledge saying, no, I'm not going to hit him anymore. And they take the kid home and then it escalates. This is a whole ass thing here. So we see that the Beast's younger brother is doing a live stream. Their father attacks them on live stream, which is how Suzu and her friends find out what is happening. They then proceed to use the view out the window and some reflections to narrow down what building these kids live in. And then Suzu gets on a bus. <laughs> and goes to find them. Because what's a 17-year-old girl gonna do? Solve child abuse, apparently. So I am conflicted at this point. Uh-oh. Because 
There's a part of me from a narrative perspective. I fear that this sounds diminishing, but there is a thing that I think is important in this moment, which is, I think that there is a theoretical value in telling stories about how young people realize that this is a, an issue and activate themselves to solve it. Everything ha that happens after Suzu makes that decision, however, is lacking in part because there are adults in the room mm. when she has that realization who stop at, we're going to call the authorities and report the issue. Oh, the authorities say they can't help us. Well, I guess all that we can do is get you a bus. Why didn't um, any um, of these goddamn grown-ups go with her? That's wild to me. Like, these adults <laughs> let this you know, 17-year-old girl go deal with a man who... We just saw this guy hit kids on the internet, and we're just gonna let a kid yeah, go. it makes no <laughs> sense. But, like, yeah. on some level, I mean, the film... I think hints at, right, that the system is broken and can't help it. The system is tremendously broken. And actually, there is a reason why Suzu's actions were effective. But the reason they would have been effective is not shown on screen at any point in time. Gone. The authorities will let it slide when you're hitting your own kids or your own partner because they belong to you. That's basically how it works. Your kids can be returned to you time after time after time. What happened, though, He's, is yeah. that Suzu has now gotten in this guy to attack her. He has physically assaulted a person that he doesn't have, essentially, ownership right to. Now we can get the police to actually do something. But none of that happens on screen. And yeah. I think that would be largely lost on an international audience. Yeah, that's not established. Like, does the dad not... Like, she comes back and, like, this is kind of supposed to be a big moment because at the beginning, she's not e really eating with her dad. She's not really involved with her... Because she's depressed and understandably so. Her mother has passed... But at the end, he's like, oh, he like meets her at the train station and is like, hey, like, do you do you, do you want dinner? And she's like, yeah. And she's wearing a bandage and he doesn't ask. And I don't know. I mean, wouldn't he be pissed off that another man attacked his daughter? Wouldn't would that be part of this conversation? But it just sort of. I mean, one would fucking hope. But <laughs> I mean, he clearly cares about his daughter, right? We have nothing to show that mm -hmm. he's abusive. He's just maybe a little distant. He just doesn't know what the hell he's doing because I mean, fair enough. Therapy is not really covered on the national healthcare system over here. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of it is also the thematic thing of this is the moment where we're supposed to establish that Suzu is in control of the situation, so nobody doubts. Yeah, that yeah it's like she's an adult and she's taking care of herself yeah. now. Yeah, like. Like, the whole conversation on the bus via text, where he's essentially like, you are doing this because this is the way that your mother raised you. I'm like, I get what you're going for. I get what mm. the emotional beat of this is. And it works for me. I cried. But that's not solving the current issue, though. Yeah. I, I, to me, I felt not quite as bad, but this, this, this twist reminded me of Wonder Egg Priority a little bit in in that it's not as bad. I want to be clear. It's not mm -hmm. as bad. But like where this story was going for me was, oh, this is like a Beauty and the Beast story and they're going to like fall in love and she's going to try to find the real person and they're going to be cute and adorable together. I thought it was going to be the the friend who keeps tr taking care of her. It obviously isn't that, that friend. That's where I thought the story was going. And then they threw all this in there. And that really, to me, that that shift became, well, now you're dealing with a much more serious concern 
that the conclusion to your story needs to address more than just we solved it and just kind of like walk away. That said, I'm going to give this credit. I would rather go into something with a beautiful aesthetic trailer and get surprised with, hey, we're going to address some social issues today. Then what we got with Wonder Egg Priority, which was, hey, we're going to address some social issues. Just kidding! Oh, God. So I will say this other thing that only occurs in my brain, because my poet brain fires synapses differently than it, than other people's brains do. Which is the movie's connection to Beauty and the Beast. And Beauty and the Beast's connection to violence. Again, my poet brain fires differently. I have literally written poems about... Beauty and the Beast. The internet thinks that the version of uh, La Bella La Bette that is referenced by Hosoda is Beaumont's. But I have a lot of feelings about Villeneuve's. Because in Villeneuve's La Bella La Bette, the Beast is turned into the Beast literally like there is an entire interlude in the story after the Beast has been restored to uh, his uh, human form. Where he tells Beauty in front of uh, his mother and another fa- and uh, a random fairy. When I was a child, my mother left me in the care of a member of the fair court while my because my father was my father had passed and in some versions of the story, like the queen goes off to join the army in, in her husband's stead, etc. And said fairy babysitter decides well. While I'm teaching you and ensuring that you grow up to be such a nice young man, I've discovered that you are indeed very handsome. Maybe you should marry me, while the boy's still a child. And his rejection of her advances leads to him being cursed. Now that's fucking weird, yeah? Mm-hmm. And even in that story, it is still framed as a level of selfishness that we associate with uh, the Beast in the Disney version, etc. That you made this personally hostile decision, etc. But in my brain, all of that kind of congealed a certain way that made me appreciate some parts in isolation of this movie. In particular, the movie's attachment to one's personal appearance as an individual element of the internet and one's attachment to being admired. So in the in- for the internet por- for- portion, that's kind of obvious. When you have an avatar on the internet, people tend to make assumptions about that avatar that has nothing to do with you and attach those assumptions to you and your personality. And that was essentially everything that Suzu and Hiroko were doing the entire movie. There's a moment when we meet uh, the lady that they had stalked earlier and like initially dis- discovered maybe she's just a terrible person. And there's a moment in you when Hiroka tells her, you have the avatar of a little baby because you think that people will let you get away with things as a result. And she's not wrong, but also where the hell did that assumption come from? When they discover uh, Jelinek has tattoos that resemble uh, dragons, they come to all kinds of conclusions about why. Maybe it's an art piece. Maybe he knows who the dragon is if he's not the dragon. Maybe they're representative of something else. He says that it's uh, a lover uh, who had passed away, and they presume that it is his first girlfriend, and that girlfriend uses that, like, comes forward and says all kinds of hostile shit about their relationship that ruins Jelinek's relationship to the entire internet immediately. And we just kind of have to consume that 
and consume the fact that his ex is beefing with his current partner and all this kind of shit. It's like, what does any of this have to do with what's happening? I will say, this movie really understands what it's like to be on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Yo! It's like, the internet is a very bad place. Uh, And I mean, it's not even just the relationship it has to the internet. Like, there is a moment when... Suzu learns that there's a rumor passing around that uh, she has just gotten together with Shinobu. And suddenly... The class group chat just explodes. Dreams <laughs> of her classmates just, just hate her suddenly for no reason. And that's... Even though that conversation is happening on the internet. I will say, the strategy game f- visual framing they used for that is fucking yeah, amazing. that's really cool. Yeah. That was inspired. I loved it. And it's it's another, like, liminal approach to, the, to like, interaction that I love a lot. But the, the reason why I love that scene is, it's actually not established that that conversation, that technique of conversation is unique to the internet. That could have still happened IRL, because she was in school when it happened. And that's the way that I read it. That that wasn't actually happening online. That was just a visual representation of her literally going to class to class and talking to people IRL. And I was like, I have a lot of feelings about the fact that you think that engaging with schoolyard politics is warfare because it is. Mm-hmm. And I I got very mad and had a lot of very very strong feelings at that moment. But like those kinds of assumptions of personality happen in space all the time and are heightened by the internet in ways that I think graft onto Beauty and the Beast very easily and appreciate it as a result. A lot of the visual metaphor is really gorgeous. There's that moment when Belle logs back into you and is just drowned under this katamari of people and it's just like ah yeah you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and check your mentions because just like wow yes that's the vibe that is what it feels like for me some days yeah and there's a lot of visual metaphors of like the mob mentality like even the police force that exists in you there's that scene when they're invading the castle that they finally discover and they're just flooding in all of these bodies coming in to go after him you know and they've been waiting they've been waiting for the target you know for an hour of the movie so there's this very clear visual representation of of understanding of like the mob nature of the net it's it's kind of disturbing (laughs) in a way and i love it a lot but going back to the whole beauty and the beast thing as visual metaphor I thought that the thing with the rose and the dancing, that ballroom sequence, was supposed to be deliberately sort of mirroring the Disney version of the tale as a commentary on how we are taught to interact with others via media. Suzu slash Belle has definitely seen Beauty and the Beast because there's just this cultural obsession with Disney over here. And definitely, I think, being in that castle... Seeing him on a fucking balcony would have basically put her in the mindset of, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing here. And that's why she initiated that dance. Because that is how you connect with the beast. That is how she has been shown to connect with it. And it says a lot, obviously, because that's a decision that she makes on her own. Because she's not being held against her will, as is part of the framing of the Disney version. Mm -hmm. So this is just her deciding that this is the best way to interact with a hostile male figure. 
she just automatically latches onto it, which I think is telling in its own way, but also like speaks to some level of the politics of admiration in this world as well. Because a lot of a lot of how people are engaging with each other is, am I being liked? Am I being hated? And Suzu, who knows that she doesn't like this, who has only gotten on you in the first place because it's a place where she can sing and doesn't want to have to care about this bullshit, still internalizes all of that in a way that guides her decisions for good or for ill on a regular basis in the movie, I thought was really telling. I will also mention, as an aside, that a Disney animator, Jin Kim, actually worked on some portions of uh, the animation of Belle, and I would not be surprised if some portion of that animation work was, in fact, that dance, um, because it does very closely resemble the original thing. And the the visuals are really interesting, because there, there is, like, a, a very significant contrast between you, the world of you, and the, like, regular world, which... I thought was fascinating because the first time that you see you is right at the beginning where there's like the the monologue that explains you. I'm going to say that the visual design around you, like the trailers are very focused on the world of you and showing how vivid and colorful it is. So when I saw the trailer for this before I saw it played right before Ava, I was like, oh, okay. This is going to be about liminality of the internet. It's going to be like the... It'll be like the internet at dream sequences in Paprika. Yeah. Just based on the visual style of what was shown to me in the trailer, I came into this expecting something that was like Paprika inspired. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't have that that reference point for myself, but I had the music video because the only thing I knew about this movie is you tell you two telling me that this exists and vague notions about what it is and i guess i would bring this up because while we haven't really mentioned it this is a kind of a musical <laughs> because it has what at least four music numbers maybe five total it's on par with your average disney which i think is really interesting because most of the music obviously takes place in you this this universe and with this character a bell and on all of the musical visuals like if you watch one of the music videos, there's literally this beautiful picture of her like riding on a giant whale, which is really awesome. And squad goals, let's do it. There's also like just a lot of emphasis on on the character's voice in the music because there's Belle, who is this manifestation of the person that she kind of sort of wants to be as a, as a musician. But then there is Suzu, the, this person who is terrified to sing. And there's this great moment where the, where she goes to like a karaoke bar and they're all shoving the microphones in her mouth and she freaks out and runs and actually i think this might be when she has her panic attack but one of them one of them yeah and i love that that contrast exists there because the again this is goes back to like the real world versus the you world there's such contrasts and yet they're supposed to be there's supposed to be a deep connection because of this whole biometric linkage between the person and their avatar and that doesn't come to fruition till the end, for at least for Suzu. But it is really fun, and the music is also really kind of good and a little bit earwormy, even in a language I don't speak. Uh, because as both have heard, I was I was humming certain a certain song from the movie because it is crazy catchy. <laughs> you is wild. You is like literally the most listened to song on my Spotify account, and I hadn't seen the movie at that point. <laughs> it's very good. 
It's a catchy tune. It's very good. So I spent ages last night thinking about why whales, like the speaker whale is a very cool aesthetic choice, but I was like, why whales? And then I realized because whales are also like people. They are social animals, but all the famous ones are lonely. All the famous whales are lonely? Yeah, that's how they got famous. The whales that get the CDs and stuff are the isolated ones who don't have packs, so they're constantly doing the mating calls, and that's how they get recorded. All the whales we know things about are the sad, lonely ones. That's super depressing. When you think about it that way, it very much is. So you're, what you're telling me is a bunch of humans in boats were like, ah, oh, this whale's this whale's all on its lonesome, let's record it. And all we're getting is the sad, sad cries of this sad, depressed whale. Yes. Who's just like, I want a friend, and I'll, I have no friends. Yes, Google the 52 hertz whale. Poor whales. There is a potential layer of this that I am not yet unraveling as well, because flying whales make an appearance in all three of Hosoda's films that are centered around the internet. This is the part where I highlight all of the visual motifs that I think Mamoru Hosoda really, really likes. Um, flying whales, including whales that carry speakers on their bodies. The idea that the internet as a collective object is made by several unknown, disembodied, wise figures who you will never get to see or hear from, but are mentioned as a title. The idea of a digital police. The presentation of the internet, not only as physical space, but as, I guess, non-Euclidean physical space, where often the rules of how you physically engage with it consistently change. Subspaces within the internet that are sealed domes or otherwise locked spaces, and those spaces being broken as a result of violence, and the act of being physically swarmed by thousands of avatars are all things that he cares about a lot, not just as visual metaphors because they look very uh, stunning, but I think really do capture, on some level, a thing that he thinks strongly about the internet, that it is very intense and foreboding, that often we can feel very overwhelmed by the presence and interaction of thousands of people who don't know us but just want us for certain things, that we can enter individual subspaces on the internet with the purpose of accomplishing a thing, and then that thing is disrupted by violence that is not directed against us but directed towards the space, but still affects us. Uh, physically and violently. And I think that I care a great deal about those things in part because the first time that I saw those images was in the very liminal sense of you don't need to physically engage with the internet for this to affect you physically. In Summer Wars, nobody had fancy headphones. But it's kind of diminished in Bell because this is your body here. And I get why it had to be because they needed to establish that there are body stakes. But in the real world, there are body stakes on the internet and I don't actually need to be in the metaverse. Twitter can still hurt me now. I get that. You didn't need to pretty that up for me. I will say though, like, I'm very jealous of Hiroko's completely juiced computer. Because (laughs) if I had that many windows open... This thing would explode. <laughs> I'm jealous that her computer is so souped up and that her tower is so mobile that she can just take it on a train to school and just set up in a classroom. 
Nah, I couldn't do that. Yeah, it's just in a little backpack on her back and she carries it around, which I thought was also really great. She's got a mobile hacker kit. I think there's a lot of really fun imagery. I mean, this is true of like Summer Wars 2, because uh, I've seen that as well. We talked about that on the show many years ago. But there's a lot of like really cool ideas at play for how things are represented, you know, things that have real world analogs. And the idea that this this version of of a kind of like supercomputer genius is not like just some person with like one of those rollout keyboards, the little rollout silicone keyboards that they magically type on, but is instead like a person who just takes over a middle school and whips out all these massive screens and all these this tech that they've just like managed to get in there with mobile units. That's like a way cooler idea of how, like, a super tech genius might actually work. We're also talking about the guy who made some awards, obviously. The guy whose last presentation of what it looked like to be a genius-level digital native was a guy who was so good at math that he can interpret code in his brain. (laughs) I will also mention a thing that, like, now that I think about it in comparison to Summer Wars, is actually sticking in my brain. We don't actually see uh, Hiroka do a great deal of big-time hacky stuff. Other than, like, hack that one person's uh, ring doorbell. Most of the information that we gain in the first half of the movie is just stuff that was easily available on the internet that they just found. I do love watching her do the social engineering, though. When she's pretending to be the reporter, like... Everything this about is that is fraud, really cool. but this is also very cute that you do know how to do this. Yeah, because I think like <laughs> traditional high school rite of passage is figuring out how much older you can play for when you're on the internet. Oh God! Even with the camera on. And this is why the internet is a hostile place for teenagers. Another thing that we've learned from the movie. But a lucrative one. It can be a lucrative one. But like the thing that I appreciate about the movie is that their cleverness is not a result of being like top tier digital penetration level hackers. Just people who are very good. Yeah, I appreciate that. They're not prodigies. This is something that any kid can do. Yeah. That's not an endorsement. I'm not saying go out and do it. (laughs) But any kid could. Yes, please don't do those kinds of things. In the real world, you'll get in a lot of trouble, a lot more trouble than these kids did. You and I both know how terribly little... Everyone in this room knows how few consequences there actually are for cyber stalkers. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, in this film, the, the irony of the characters in the game playing you police, saying that there's like... Have you ever wondered why there are no police on the internet? Why, why there are no police? It's like, well, except you're operating as that, as that, and and also mm-hmm. like that's also the problem, because there's. And I'm not saying we need literal police. I just mean like there is no oversight to all of these systems, and so this teenager can get on here, become this this superstar, and then can be faced with unimaginable pressure and stress and verbal violence. And there's no repercussions for anybody. In fact, worse, the absence of repercussions means nobody pauses to think ethically whether or not they should say the thing that they feel. Not because saying what you feel is inherently bad, but because saying what you feel sometimes can hurt other people. And sometimes you should just keep feelings to yourself. One of the most heartbreaking things came really early in the movie when after her mother's death, 
Suzu is on the internet reading an article about it and reading yes. the comments. Yes, and it's like that—that's—that's that's the example oh, I'm thinking you poor of. Poor baby, right? Because nobody pauses to think, what if this person's family reads these comments? I have put these in a space that is accessible to the public, and nobody ethically pauses to say whether or not what they feel and think, knee jerk or whatever, is a thing that should be said. I know her family probably didn't have like the energy to sue any of those people but like you can do that here <laughs> i'm vindictive enough that i probably would like if somebody was talking shit about my father's death on the internet i would make it my personal mission to just ruin their fucking lives how sour must your life be how how hollow is your spirit that you decided to take five minutes out of your day to say someone who sacrificed their life saving someone else's life to criticize a woman for saving another child <laughs> Yeah. You have to be a certain level of dark-hearted to say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes bad-talking this woman who sacrificed her life to save a child. Yeah, and like I was kind of saying before, I'm glad that the film presents this to us. Doesn't stop to, like, soften it. Really just presents it to us as, like, this is the way this thing works. And doesn't say, now let's have a philosophical conversation about how you should feel about this. We can make the deductions easily enough through the characters' reactions, right? Suzu feeling horrific uh, pain at the things that people say and do and the pressure that comes with these things. I, I'm glad that the film does that because, to be honest, I, I, f I feel like we're not having enough conversations culturally about like the very real-world cost to our sense of the humanity of other people to the way that we behave online. So a film that kind of presents that, like, I think if you, you go through this film, you cannot come to the conclusion that the way that people are behaving online in this, in this universe is fundamentally good, right? This is incredibly toxic and horrible. They're not, they're not funny, right? Like some of the comments are kind of funny and silly, but a lot of them are like really harmful and it, because it's centering around a bunch of teenagers, it's even more so. And I think it goes back to something you were saying earlier, Brandon, about like assumptions that people make. You know, people just assume things about other people they've never met and then say things about them online, just peddling these ideas around without any care to the harm that that may cause. This is why I kind of wish that the end of the movie might have actually dealt with like yeah, being revealed is actually comes with much more serious consequences. I get that the movie wants a slightly happier ending, which I can also appreciate because who the internet is a dark place that seems to never end with its darkness. But at the same time, it's sort of like, but isn't that the concern with being doxxed? That that mob that goes after the beast inside the game is the mob in real life that comes for you. I think ultimately the thing that I am conflicted about about the movie is... I feel like it is obvious that Hosoda cares more about having that conversation about the internet. Like, at some point, it just kind of feels like the ending is a kind of gotcha as a result. Look at the kinds of people that you're speaking about. They're actually suffering. Maybe be nicer about that uh, without giving any care for afterwards the realization that, hey, you just revealed that these people are suffering. Maybe tell a story about that suffering. Yeah, because they reveal the video of the kids being abused by their dad. Yeah, and it is hinted as a result that someone who is not everybody in the room with Suzu leaked it to the father. Which implies as a result that when that conversation took place, somebody else on you saw it. 
and that's why that was hid. Well, and even in the video when they're t- when she calls him, right? There are those three people that pop in all of a sudden on that video call and like joke about whether they should call the cops, basically. And then they just log off. So the assumption we have to make is that they did nothing. Yeah, they didn't care. It was no longer entertaining. Which is a lot. Yeah, which to some degree kind of goes to kind of what you were talking about earlier. Like culturally, this film kind of does very clearly present to us that there is a culture of, of this thing not being taken seriously. Not only is it not taken seriously, a lot of people make excuses for it all the time. Like a lot of people upon seeing that video would have just been like, well, a parent has the right to discipline their child. Because in Japan, the line, when discipline becomes abuse, is extremely fuzzy and corporal punishment is still largely socially acceptable, which is unfortunate as hell. Yeah, I will say that that the way that the the abuse scene is shot is really uncomfortable, but also very effective when he's repeatedly telling the kid that telling him like he's basically worthless and all of this stuff. And he's trying to take that responsibility by by telling his younger brother, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault, repeatedly saying it is visceral and really, really uncomfortable. Not because it's badly shot, but precisely because it feels, I know they're cartoon characters, but it feels extremely real. And big credit for that, but... Also, uh, you know, maybe you could have given me a warning ahead of time. <laughs> cool. Well, again, none of us expected this. It wasn't in the trailers. For me, the yeah. most effective part was when Kay is going off on Anisuzu about how everyone who said they were going to help just says, I'll talk to your dad. I talked to your dad and he understands now because that is socially how it's dealt with over here. The large majority of child abuse cases don't go reported because when the child seeks help, the person they seek it from tries to talk things out with the the parent in question because that's just how it's done. That's the acceptable way to do it because there's so much emphasis on keeping the family together at all costs, even when it's detrimental to the child. So like a kid will tell the guidance counselor or their teacher... And the response is that that authority figure will turn around and sit down with the parent. And the parent gets the chance to minimize it. And the parent knows the kid reported them. And it just makes things worse. A lot of the stuff never gets to cops or to social welfare centers because of this emphasis on, we'll talk to the parent first. We'll talk to the parent first. We're keeping it in the family. And then even when it does get reported, there is still that emphasis on we're going to keep it in the family and we're going to keep this family together. Part of that is also because Japan doesn't have a strong culture of fostering other people's children while they're children. (laughs) So when a kid is put into the system, that means orphanage. And a lot of that is is in all of the words that the case says right because he's he's repeating mm-hmm. all of the lines that people have said to him over and over everyone's really focused on actually trying to keep him with the parent because there's this very toxic view that even if the parent is actively physically or sexually abusive that is somehow still better than the orphanage Thank you. i'm sorry talking about social welfare in japan is a real well in talking about social welfare in any country is a real fucking downer yeah it's pretty it's a really and downer. And to clarify, like, these are not, like, 
while this is, while we are observing how distinct it is in Japan, it bears noting that there are shades of this everywhere. I I, I yeah. I I am having similar feelings in Trinidad and Tobago as well, as somebody who was very viscerally upset by that scene in particular. So like, yes. I will throw it to everybody to have a quick final thought, and if you feel inclined to grade the movie, you are you may grade the movie. You are not required to. So I will go to Yori first. Do you have any final thoughts? And if so, what would they be? My only final thought is that if you're listening, just please go make a donation to your local little shelter for victims of domestic violence and abuse. All right. Fair enough. Brandon? First of all, seconding that motion very heavily. And if you cannot make that donation and financially consider also donating your service to that kind of work. Because sometimes you forget that you are also a person that can care for the young people in your world. As for the movie, I think, as I was previously assuming when I got into the- when I started the movie, that it is a very uh, thoughtful and deliberate interpretation of the internet that I appreciate, and of teenagers' relationship to the internet and therefore to each other that I appreciate, that I feel should have done a little bit more to ask the real question of what really happens after the end of a situation like K's. And even though I wish that there was more, I don't think that it's a terrible movie because it didn't give me that. I just wish that it had. So if I had to rate it, I would probably give it an A-. minus. I think that's fair. I guess the last thing I would, would say is I think the film's really interesting. I the You know, if, if for anything, get the soundtrack because that'll earworm the shit out of you. And I think it, it does some interesting stuff. It just doesn't necessarily give the resolution that I kind of felt I wanted, which is fine because that isn't I'm one person. So whatever. So if I were to grade this, I would say a B plus. I think it's solid. It just has some flaws, but it's pretty. It's so pretty. It's super pretty. And everybody should have a friend who starts a kayak club. (laughs) I really liked Kamishin. I like the way he blushes all the way to his ankles. Oh my god, could I just say that scene where he finds out that someone has a crush on him, that whole scene is the most adorable thing in the entire movie. And it gets gets an A plus in that scene alone. It's really cute. So yeah, so there we go. We did it. Well, folks, that's it. So again, if you'd like to let us know what you think about this episode or another episode, you can go to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. Also, you can follow us on Skiffy and Fanty on Twitter and Instagram and get the newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And lastly, if you like what we do, there are two ways you can support us. Patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty and then leaving us some reviews. And technically, there's a third way, which is telling your friends. So go to iTunes, Podchaser, all those places. You can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net, Alphabet Streams on Twitch, and patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. You can find me, Brandon O'Brien, at The Rising Tides on Twitter, patreon.com slash The Rising Tides, and on speculatesf.com, where I currently GM Fractal Spire, a Girl by Moonlight actual play. You can find me at Yori Kusano on Twitter, kusanoyori.com, and also playing in Fractal Spire at speculatesf.com. Please note that is spelled I-O-R-I. There are no L's in my name. Correct. And also, uh, not not aioli. Oh God! Oh God! 
Not aioli. Not aioli. That's not how you say the I'm name. Not the salad dressing. No, iori is not a salad dressing. Although that salad dressings are delicious, but iori is not one of those. <laughs> yeah. Noted. So, so I just thought thought I would say that so that I can make it awkward. Mm-hmm. On that note, anonymize your selfies. Blur your pupils, blur your background. <laughs> Stay safe on the internet, kids. Never take a photo of a window again. Never. And on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.